You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. We're committed to sparking important conversations about money and inspiring you to always be in the financial front seat. Learn more at fidelity.com slash front seat. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hey, everybody. It's Jean Chatsky. Happy Valentine's Day. Even if you're rolling your eyes right now, happy Valentine's Day. We want you to know from me, from Kelly, from all of us here that we love you and we're really grateful that you're on this ride with us. And with Valentine's Day in mind, we've got a very special conversation in store for you. We are with positive psychology experts and husband and wife, Suzanne Pileggi-Powelski and James Powelski, who are authors of the new book that you've been hearing about. It's called Happy Together, Using the Science of Positive Psychology to Build Love That Lasts. They are both pen people, which, as you know, makes me really happy because I just get a little joy from being able to talk about the wonderful work and the wonderful research that is coming out of the University of Pennsylvania. Susie has a Master's of Applied Positive Psychology from Penn. James is Director of Education and Senior Scholar at the Positive Psychology Center at Penn. I, I'm sort of sensing that there is an interesting story about how the two of you met, um, and maybe we'll ask you to tell that as well. But what we know is that relationships are the number one predictor of happiness. They can have a profound effect on your money, and marriage can be one of the biggest financial decisions that you will ever make. And we could all use some help in the love department from time to time. So thank you both for coming on the show, and happy Valentine's Day to both of you, too. Thank you, Jean. Thanks for having us here today. We're really excited. Thanks, Jean, and happy Valentine's Day. Thank you. Well, now I do have to ask, how did you meet? We met through our passions. Are we allowed to talk about that on this show? Uh, absolutely. <laughs> We met through our passions. Look, both of us um, had been uh, doing other things with our lives. I as a philosopher, Susie as in television, production, um, and uh, PR. And we both read a book uh, long before we met each other. Uh, it was called Learned Optimism by Martin Seligman. And in that book, we found out about ways in which we could manage our thoughts and our interpretations of what happens to us in our lives and make ourselves less pessimistic and more optimistic. And so we were both really impressed by that book, and that changed our careers. And um, because of that, we wound up, both of us, following the path of, of learning about positive psychology, and that's what brought us together. You learned it at Penn from Marty Seligman, I imagine, who is considered the father of positive psychology. So let's tell people what it is. How is positive psychology different from mainstream psychology? So that's an important distinction, Jean. So mainstream psychology focuses on what's wrong with people and how to correct it, which, of course, is important. Positive psychology focuses on what's right with people and how to cultivate it, which is also important and we think a whole lot more fun. 
it definitely is a lot more fun. I mean, I am not going to get into my experiences on the couch, but I, I don't find it particularly <laughs> fun to dive back in and try to fix those things that are clearly wrong. In the book, you guys take the principles of positive psychology and you apply them to romance, essentially, to help people build the kind of love and the kind of relationships that last. And a lot of this has to do with building healthy habits. That's something that we talk about a lot on this show. So take us to the relationship gym. What is this place where we build healthier relationship habits? Sure. So one of the main reasons first we wrote the book, because as we all know, there's so much focus in uh, pop culture today on uh, the wedding rather than the marriage, Mm -hmm. you know, that one magical day, no doubt, but what about the years to come that's intended to last a lifetime? And we think people mistakenly think, you know, happily ever after just happens because, you know, in fairy tales and the movies it does. But, you know, we know based on research and our own experiences that it's healthy habits uh, that lead really to a long-lasting love. And it's interesting, Jean, because in other aspects of our life, like the gym, Specifically, that's why we talk about the uh, relationship gym. But the physical gym, right, you don't just buy a gym membership and expect overnight to be healthy at one workout. Uh, no, what do you do? You work out, you know, regularly and uh, religiously, and you develop routines, and you change them up a bit, you know, add some novelty when you get bored and things aren't working. Well, so we feel that, um, like in our romantic life, you need to have some sort of relationship gym and have habits that you do individually and with your partner and trying new things. So some of the habits specifically we found in positive psychology research uh, that shows are associated with uh, sustainable relationships are habits around cultivating a healthy passion, uh, cultivating positive emotions, Um, rather than just waiting for them to happen and taking time to savor your experiences together and focusing on the strengths in yourself and in your partner. I want to definitely dive into each of those areas because I think that they're all important and they need a little bit of explanation. But before we get there, if you were to define a healthy relationship, what does that look like? We're both going to answer at the same time. Okay. You know what? I'll, I'll start using names. James, what Focusing does a healthy relationship look like? <laughs> rather than what you get out of it and focusing on what is going right on your partner's strengths. Often in the beginning of a relationship, uh, we are intrigued by the differences, right, in our partner. But later on, we might see those differences as deficits. So I think seeing your relationship through a lens of positive psychology and focusing on what is going right and further nurturing uh, those uh, nuggets. Well, this is is something that, okay, sure, you answer and then I'll ask my (laughs) follow-up. No, 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 I was just going to say that's just what I would have said, Jean. She answered exactly (laughs) as I would have. (laughs) So this is one of those areas where money sometimes throws a real wrench into the works. It mucks things up. And it, it mucks things up because when we seek out somebody who is different from us, who compliments us and has a totally different financial style than us, 
it's it's hard to appreciate that. I mean, I've talked to couples. I've been doing a lot of interviews lately with women for a, a new book that I'm working on, and I've talked to some women who've said things like, you know, the fact that he was a little more free spending enabled me to loosen up a little bit, and that was a good thing. But I've talked to far more who said, I am going to kill my husband because he spent $200 on tickets to a concert that I'm not even going to. So (laughs) I think it's a very difficult dance. How do we, when we're talking specifically about money, get ourselves to appreciate those differences? Yeah, it is difficult, Gene, no no doubt about it. Look, it's difficult even if you're not in a relationship, right? I mean, money is a challenge to all of us. And I think oftentimes... The money issue comes out when there are values that we haven't talked about yet, right? So you think you know this person, you've fallen in love with them, you're getting married, you're in a long-term relationship, and then all of a sudden, yeah, they spend $200 on something that you just can't even believe it, right? So I think a real key underlying that is communication. And again, the way we communicate can really make a huge difference. So oftentimes we wait until there's a problem, And then we, because problems scream at us and they get our attention, Mm -hmm. and then we're willing to lay into our spouse, $200 for what, right? Opportunities, on the other hand, uh, they sort of whisper. And so having those conversations about what our values are, how we would prospectively like to lead our lives, not just reactively, um, you know, put the kibosh on what somebody else wants to do. All of those kinds of conversations we think are very important in terms of getting to know your partner. Um, and so this extends across our relational uh, lives, including, of course, money as well. And it's interesting that there are some general trends about money that uh, seem to be particularly connected to well-being and to happiness. And so one area of research indicates that when we spend money less on things Mm -hmm. and more on experiences, then we tend to continue that growth, the coming together, and developing the relationship. Similarly, when we spend money on ourselves, that seems to be less connected to well-being than when we spend money on others. So, of course, this is all within the context of careful communication about values and so forth, hopefully before those expenditures are made, so that you can think about how to channel your own interests, your own joys and enjoyments, and connect it up with what research indicates to us, maybe some really especially useful ways of spending our money. I like to think of the conversations that we have about what do we want this year? What do we want in five years? And what do we want in 10 years? You know, the big life dream kind of conversations as being the most romantic way to look at money, because you're essentially just talking about life. You're not, you're not really talking about finances until after you establish the goals and then figure out what's affordable. You know, you're really allowing yourself to see what your partner wants and and they see what you want, and hopefully you can merge those visions. Absolutely. There's actually a, a kind of a technical term from psychology that I think is really uh, cool here, Gene. Prospective savoring. So if you think about, you know, experiences, you go on a vacation or something, you come back afterwards and you, you talk about it, you look at pictures, and so you're savoring the experience. But you can do this not just about something that is in the past or even something that is in the present, but something that's in the future. 
And so I totally agree with you. If you sit down with your significant other and you, and you prospect into the future, you imagine how things could be, that doesn't cost anything, right? And so you can do kind of these, um, these simulations. Well, what would it look like if we lived our lives this way? How does that uh, uh, connect with our values, with our strengths, with where we want to go? How would it be like if we lived our lives that way? And I think if we spent more time in exactly that kind of prospective savoring, imagining, kind of trying things out together, <laughs> and less of the time in the reactive scolding, we'll be a lot better off. You just gave me total permission to spend my Sunday afternoons immersed in Realtor.com. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I want to move into those four key areas that you guys have isolated when it comes to building and sustaining love. But before we do that, I want to remind everybody that Her Money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. And no matter what stage of life you're in or what kind of perspective savoring you're doing, it is vital for all women to be actively engaged in our finances and our investments before it becomes a necessity. That means knowing what we own, what we owe, what our goals are, and making the time to have a financial checkup at least once a year. That's being in your financial front seat, and you can learn more about that at fidelity.com slash front seat. We are happy to be back with Susie and James, authors of the new book, Happy Together. So you've got these four areas that you say, whether you're dating, starting a relationship, already in a relationship, or have been in that relationship for a long time, there are these four key areas to making love last. Let, let's take them one by one and talk about them. The first one you call harmonious passion. I'm going to come out of this show with a whole new vocabulary that I'm very excited about. <laughs> so, so what is that? And give me an example. Sure, no problem. First, I want to say what it's not. So we see in pop culture and in films all the time this swept away, I can't live without you, sort of, I can't focus on anything else, you're my one and only. And, of course, you have feelings like that in the beginning of a relationship, and it's associated with those romantic highs, and that's great and wonderful. But the research shows if you're still focusing on your partner at the distraction of everything else, you're no longer seeing your friends, you know, months into the relationship, and um, you can't seem to, you know, get your work and, you know, other obligations accomplished, you might be in a healthy sort of relationship, uh, an obsessive passion. So in order to prevent that from happening, uh, focusing on cultivating a harmonious or a healthier passion, ways you can do that is when you're in a relationship, think back to those activities, those interests, and friends um, that you enjoyed spending time with before that special person came into your life, and make sure you're still doing those things. Uh, you want to maintain a healthy sense of self. Your partner probably saw for you because of those unique aspects. And unfortunately, a lot of people lose their sense of identity in the other person. So you want to continue your interests, your hobbies, spending time with other people, and just remembering uh, to engage in activities by yourself as well as with your partner to help create a healthier passion. You know, we saw so many women of particularly earlier generations 
subsume financially, give up all their financial autonomy. And it's a lot less common today. We talk a lot more about how both parties in a couple really need to maintain some financial autonomy in part because when you have money that you're responsible for, you're going to be more interested in and knowledgeable about managing it. And that's just something that we all have to do. But also because you need to be able to make some spending and if you want saving decisions without asking permission. Do you think that fits into your harmonious passion definition? Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that it reminds me of, Jean, is research that, that show, you know, we think about relationships oftentimes in terms of sacrifice, right? So I'm just going to sacrifice myself for my uh, significant other, and that will show my love. And, you know, and it turns out that folks who are in that kind of relationship tend to be less well off in their relationship than folks who look to try to support the autonomy of the other person. And so it's about allowing the other person to flourish and to grow and to be well. So our approach is looking for the good in the other person, supporting it, not trying to stifle yourself so that you can somehow fit in to what, what somebody else needs. So research indicates that it's interdependence that we really want to aim for, not codependence or dependence on someone else, and not a complete independence either, but a kind of interdependence that comes from, again, seeing the good in, in each other and each person supporting the other person in their growth and development. The second item on your list is positive emotions. And and as you explain in the book, that when you have feelings of joy and gratitude and hope, it can help motivate each other to invest in each other's well-being, which is good for the overall relationship. How do we maintain those with the pressures of day-to-day life? We have to actively really cultivate the positive emotions because in the beginning of a relationship, they just naturally happen. And often, you know, people get disappointed over time when they, you know, sort of decrease in intensity. I mean, that's totally normal that you're not going to feel the same, you know, highs that you might um, in the newlywed uh, phase, so to speak. So by actively cultivating positive emotions, um, you can help strengthen your relationship. And the research shows that something researchers call prioritizing positivity, which is just a fancy way of saying making those choices and decisions of how to structure your day around activities uh, that bring you joy. So couples that are the happiest together are those who have conversations about their individual interests and shared activities, and they actually schedule it in their day so that then they experience positive emotions as an after effect. So it's not sitting around waiting for those joyous moments just to happen. It's taking action and scheduling activities, which will then evoke uh, those feelings in uh, both partners. You talk about a positivity journal. Is that like a gratitude journal? Similar. So we call it a positive relationship portfolio. So I'm sure you talk to people all the time about having a financial portfolio, which is important, and we think just as important for the success of a relationship uh, is a positive relationship portfolio. And this is where you gather shared mementos, 
It could be, you know, a card you receive from your partner, something that brings you um, joy looking at it. And it could be something physical in a folder or um, an electronic folder in your computer. And you just store away these things and you spend um, 15 minutes or so every day for a week looking at these items and savoring them and feeling the emotions that these evoke and remembering the experiences that shared with your partner. Is that what you're talking about when you talk about mindful savoring, which is, I think, item number three? Exactly. So that the savoring is so important because, again, we tend in the early parts of a relationship to be just overwhelmed sometimes with this the bliss, the great feelings of connecting with someone else in these new ways for the first time. And then as that begins to mature into a more companionate relationship, perhaps, then the, the temptation is to think, oh, I'm not in love, or oh, those feelings, you know, I'm never going to feel positive emotions again, I'm never going to feel good again, when it turns out that for most of us, most of the time, we have far more positive experiences in our lives than we do negative experiences. The challenge is that, again, problems scream at us and opportunities whisper. So when we're annoyed about something, that really gets us. Whereas if something goes well, we tend to forget about it. So savoring is a way of rebalancing and acknowledging that our lives really do have a lot of positive connections in them. And so by by intentionally, this is now going back to the relationship, gem, right? By intentionally mm-hmm. focusing on them, we can cultivate what we call lengthen and strengthen those emotions to help kind of not recapture, but appropriately move into new spaces of emotional connection with your partner. I, I want to pause at the last one because it's character strengths. And I, I think this is an especially important point when we're talking about managing finances together. There's been some research that points to uh, couples where one thinks that their partner does a particularly bad job at managing the money. And those relationships um, usually don't have such a good track record. They're not often there for the long term. They're more likely to end in divorce. So how do we identify and cultivate what character strengths are really important? Well, in positive psychology with the character strengths, researchers have found that we all have a variety of course character strengths in different configurations. And there's 24 character strengths they've found that have been valued across times and culture. And anybody could find out what their character strengths are um, by taking the free VIA survey. And we have that listed on our website at buildhappytogether.com. Once you find out what your character strengths are, you want to look at your top five, which are commonly referred to as um, your signature strengths. So these are things we tend to lead with. So it might be things like you're naturally creative or you're a natural-born leader or you're naturally kind or socially intelligent. Um, So once you find out what these things are, you can further work on those and have discussions about your character strengths with your partner. And then I think in that way, depending what your strengths are, having conversations around money. Maybe one of you is uh, more, uh, you know, pays attention to detail and a more analytical thinker. And that person maybe is the one who should be doing, you know, balancing the checkbook and the house and making decisions depending upon what your natural strengths are. 
I think that's right. I think there's another way of thinking, Gene, about how strengths connect in. So if you think about kindness, for example, that's one of the signature strengths. And I can see that kindness could potentially be a problem from a financial standpoint, mm-hmm. right? Um, somebody is just feels like they want to give to their relatives who are less well-off or they see strangers in the street or they get solicitations in the mail and they just, their heart just is broken. And so they spend, they send more than they really can afford uh, or perhaps don't consult adequately with their partner before they do that. So that's what, it, what we refer to as the, the dark side or the shadow side of the strength or maybe overuse of the strength. And so, a strengths-based approach isn't saying to that person who's giving away too much money, you idiot, what are you doing? You know, you're bankrupting us, right? It's trying to understand what is the strength that's driving that. And so if the strength is kindness, understanding where that comes from and helping that person be able to exercise kindness in a way that doesn't bankrupt the relationship financially, right? So maybe there are ways in which that person could go to a soup kitchen and volunteer, or maybe there are ways in which they themselves can recognize that there needs to be more of a balance as they exercise their strength of kindness. But again, that's a very different kind of conversation from blame and anger to now curiosity and interest in helping the other person to grow in healthy ways. And I haven't taken the quiz yet. I will. Is there a category for putting together furniture from Ikea? <laughs> are you are you uh, good? No, that, I'm terrible. Not, I, I'm I'm terrible at it, and so is my husband. And we've just agreed we are never going to do it together again because we know that our marriage can handle it. <laughs> I'm not good at that either, so I can completely relate. Uh, <laughs> well, Jean, you will be happy to know that these are character strengths, and I don't think being bad at putting IKEA furniture together has anything to do with your good character. Well, I'm very relieved. <laughs> Thank you. And and thank you guys for coming in and having this conversation with me and with all of us uh today on Valentine's Day. It's it's um I, I think the more that we can do to understand ourselves and understand the people that we love enough to decide that we want to spend our lives with them, the better off we're you know, we're all gonna be. We had a conversation a few weeks ago with Dan Pink who wrote a new book called When about perfect timing and just learning about how to manage your own biological rhythms and get through the day leading with your strengths, whether you're an early bird or a night owl, was helpful. And I think this is similarly helpful. It, it just enables us to, to do the best with what we have. So I appreciate your input, and I hope you'll come back. Thanks so much, Jean. We Thank really appreciate you. what you're doing to help get the word out about these kinds of, you know, the science and, and these approaches. And what motivates us in, in doing this work is to try to encourage other people to join in as well. It's fun to go to the gym. It's even more fun to go with other people and to take a class. So we hope that there will be a lot of people who will want to join together in community, exploring these notions of how to find the good in your partner and feed that good for a healthy relationship. So folks who are interested can can visit our website at www.build.com 
happytogether.com, and there's a lot of material there. There's a place you can take a pledge uh, to uh, uh, indicate that you and your partner want to approach your relationship in this way, for example. That sounds fantastic. James and Susie, thank you so much. Thank you for getting on the phone with us for Valentine's Day. Thank you, Jean. Happy Valentine's Day. It was a fun conversation. For Thanks me, so too. Much, okay, bye-bye. And Kelly has joined me in the studio. So thank you, by the way. Happy Valentine's Day. But thank you for suggesting that we have them on the show because that was a wonderful conversation, I think. Oh, it was fantastic. And it was mutual. I think we both saw it and we're like, this sounds right. This sounds like it would be a very good show for Valentine's Day. And uh, I just really enjoyed the conversation. And I also took the quiz. You did. Yes. I haven't done that yet. I took the character strengths quiz and it was pretty telling. What did it say? So my top five were perspective, prudence, kindness, leadership, and humor. And when they say perspective, what do they mean? From what I remember, they were perspective meant intuition. And I think you've actually told me that before, too. So if it's anything, if it's worth anything, the character strengths profile was pretty fitting for me. Okay, I'm going to take it. And, it was and you're supposed to take it and then have your spouse take it or your partner take it. Correct. Right? And yes. see how you stack up. Exactly. Okay. It reminds me of love languages. Ah. In a way. Yeah. Hayden's a big fan of love languages. Hayden is a huge fan. She is pumping her fist in the air right now in the studio. But no, it reminded me of that. And I actually did send it to my boyfriend and he was instructed to take it. But I doubt that he has yet. Okay. We'll nudge him. (laughs) Yeah. We'll we'll nudge him. All right. We have questions? Yes. Our first question is from Jill, who says she has shared the podcast with her college students. Thank you, Jill. She's wondering about health savings accounts. She writes, I have received conflicting advice. Our financial advisor says we are on track for our retirement goals, but he also thinks we should save the money in our HSA for retirement. Our tax advisor says we should use the money in our HSA now because that is what it is there for and we should take advantage of the tax break. What do you think we should do? I think their tax advisor is confused. Um, (laughs) And apologies to your tax advisor, but you get the tax break for making the contribution um, to your health savings account. And yes, you get a break for using that pre-tax money to pay for current health care. But if you can put the money in the account and allow it to grow as a supplemental retirement account and you don't need to use it now, I would do that. I think that's a very, very smart thing to do. You can always get it out later without penalty if you need it for anything medical related in the future. And once you're of retirement age, you can also get it out for anything with exactly the same parameters as a 401k. So I think investing the money if you don't need it right now is the smart thing to do. And I think it's a backdoor retirement account, a way to tax shelter more money that many people don't understand is even there. So I like that. Next one from Susan. My mother recently passed away, leaving $14,000 in credit card debt. Her only income was Social Security and widow veterans benefits. Those both stopped, of course, and she did not leave any money. She lived in assisted living, so there's no home or valuables to sell as the executor of her estate, as it were. Am I responsible for that credit card debt? I can't really afford it either. Is there negotiating room with the credit card company? She's not responsible. You're not (gasps) responsible. Oh, really? It's not your debt. But first of all, let's just back up for a second and say, I'm really sorry 
about your mom. I mean, that's a terrible loss. And to be dealing with that and worrying about having to repay this debt that your mother incurred at the same time, that's just a lot to take. But no, you are not legally responsible for that debt. They can certainly ask you for it, but it's not yours. If there was money in the estate, the estate would be responsible Mm. for paying it. But since there is no money, then you don't have to worry about it. So where does it go? It gets written off. So every year credit card companies and other financial institutions that lend money to people write off bad debts. This is going to come under the category of one of those bad debts. But don't you even think about stressing yourself out to try to pay this off because you don't like the idea of the words bad debt. Mm -hmm. It's not your debt. Right. You don't have to pay it. And you've got enough going on in your life. So no. Wow. Thank you for writing in. And we'll do one more from Katie, who writes, I feel like you've probably answered this question, but we all need reminders, right? 100%, Katie. Her question, my husband and I are looking to buy our first house in the next few years. Our timing is based more on the fact that we are likely to move closer to family soon rather than our current finances. Assuming 20% down, we are almost at our savings goal. Where should we put this money until we're ready to buy? I know it's a short-term investment, but is there a better option than a high-yield savings account currently in one at 1.35%? You might find one at (laughs) 1.5%. If you look really, really hard, I got an offer in the mail for a savings account at 1.5% the other day. No, this money belongs in the bank. If you want to stretch for an increased interest rate, look at credit unions, look at high-yielding money market accounts, look at internet banks, but you do not want this money in anything where it could potentially lose value. And great, good for you for thinking about buying a home. We're, We're hearing more and more about people buying homes. And as we were talking about autonomy, we know that When we own our own homes and are able to paint the walls purple, if we want, or (laughs) turquoise or, you know, pale gray, as everybody seems to be painting their walls these days, that gives us a great deal of pleasure um, because it feels like it really is ours. And there's a sense of security and a sense of value and a sense of comfort in that. So good luck. Good luck and thank you for writing in. Thank you for all of your questions. You can go to jeanchatsky.com to the podcast page and you will see a question box that you can submit yours. And thank you so much, Kelly. And while we're talking about buying houses, in today's Thrive segment, if you're in the market to buy this year, here's something that you want to know about. Many sellers aren't just looking for you to show them the money, but also sell them on why you should have the home. This is particularly true in competitive markets. Sending a pitch letter, which is essentially a personal note about why you'd love to buy their home could actually increase your chances of closing the deal by about half and over 75% in the priciest 10% of markets, according to new data from Redfin, which is a Seattle-based real estate brokerage. Now, it's true. Money does talk, and that is especially true in a seller's market. All cash offers nearly double a buyer's chance of winning out over other offers. And in the luxury market, all cash offers boost your odds by even more. But building an emotional bond with the seller, especially if they have a long time attachment to their house, it can give you an edge. 
and this is according to reporting in the Wall Street Journal. If you plan to try this, a few things you want to know. First, include specifics. Include the things that you love about the house, why you feel at home there, where you'd put a child's nursery, personal photos, or even a paw print signature from the family dog. I think that might win them over right there. And I know of instances in my own town where this has actually worked in particularly competitive times. So I would encourage you, write your hearts out. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thank you to Suzanne Pileggi Powelski and James Powelski for the fantastic conversation. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Please leave us a review because we really take to heart what you think. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We record this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Track Tribe, and our show comes to you through PRX. We'll talk soon.